Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning and happy Easter. If you have a chance to go check out the seeds area, you'll notice that one of the things that um, we're really trying to communicate to the children of the church is that Easter should be a day of exuberant celebration. It should be a day that even from your earliest memories, you associate with what joy and happiness really mean, where that that true emotion comes from. Um, Too often in our world, we experience the happiest emotions over very superficial, fleeting things, and that's why happiness does not seem to last. But real joy is rooted in something that cannot be taken away, something that cannot be changed no matter what. And if more people could latch on to the, un, the enduring and lasting joy of being saved in Jesus Christ, I think we'd have a lot less moping about, a lot less depression, a lot less despair that covers over our world. And so we want to at least show that to our children, but I want to commend that same kind of thinking to you, that this is a day where your sour face needs to be put aside very intentionally Because Jesus wants to break into your life with joy today. So let's start with this, because I have to look at all your faces while I preach, just like you have to look at mine. And this is what I get to look at most Sundays. I don't know if that's your blessed face or how you look when you're getting moved by the Spirit, but it looks like you have a different kind of movement most of the time. Um, How about this? Why don't we start the day by smiling, because sometimes the heart follows the face. So without exception, can we do that? Can, we, can you smile at me just once? Thank you. God bless you. Happy Easter. Let me read the, the text for you. Today I'm going to go unplugged and not have a, a normal slide thing. I don't want you to be distracted with the pictures today. I think a lot of scripture has been read this morning, and I want to read still a little more for you. We're going to look at Luke chapter 24. Verses 33 to 53. And the title of the message is Risen with Christ. Meaning that as much as Christ was raised from the dead, we also are raised with him in some significant ways. Luke chapter 24, verses 33 to 53. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. And saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it. And aided in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy 
And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. You know, this is a very special weekend in the Christian calendar. And we've already had a really meaningful Good Friday service together with our friends from ICC and from Hope. And, you know, if you think about this whole weekend, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and rightfully so, get all of the attention, don't they? But what about Saturday? Because Saturday is an intensely important day for us as Christians to think about a little bit. Friday is the day where everything is going down. It's the day of crisis and shock. It's the day when the unthinkable is happening and you're on the phone, you're blasting out emails, sending out the word. The last thing we ever expected to happen has happened and you're calling out the the Christian family to rally and support and huddle together. It's a day of fast-paced events that take your breath away. And you can hardly pause to really reflect on what's happening because Friday, symbolically, is the day when all hell literally breaks loose. We've had those Fridays in our lives, haven't we? Those days where you hear news you can't imagine you would ever hear, where everything is happening and you can hardly understand what's going on. Those are Fridays, and we're very familiar with those days. Sunday is the day of good news. It's the day of dawning hope, light finally at the end of a long tunnel. You've been in the dark a long time, but on Sunday, you catch the first glimmer of daylight. You start to catch your breath again, feel like yourself again, start to hope again. And that fog that marked the future is starting to dissipate and you're regaining some clarity and some peace in your life. Sunday is the day of rescue and redemption. And many of us have had those days as well, where you're tense with worry. Every muscle in your body is knotted. And then you get the call, and the crisis is averted, and good news comes. And it's as if a coiled knot just gets untied inside of you. And so we identify very readily with Good Friday, the day of crisis, and with Sunday, the day of deliverance. But we don't even have a name for Saturday. And Saturday is an important day because Saturday is the day of death. It's the day when adrenaline leaks out of your system and gives way to a cold numbness that starts to set in. I toyed around with coming up with a nickname for Saturday, but uh, I thought that would be very distracting. But it really is the day where disappointment and cold realization start to harden like cement in your heart. Where you realize, oh my goodness, nothing is the way it's supposed to be. This is not at all the reality I had expected or planned for, but this is what my life is going to be now. It's the day when you face the hard facts and everybody who rallied to you in the moment of crisis has kind of gone to their own homes and you're left alone with the whole reality. This is my life. This is death. This is the consequence of being human in a fallen world. And you're filled with this despairing question. What on earth am I supposed to do now? A lot of us have had more than our fair share of Saturdays. Some of us came to church this morning very much stuck in a Saturday that to you feels like it's never going to end. Can you identify with that? Because you see, somewhere between the craziness of Friday and the wonderful relief of Sunday is a day we have to pass through where we understand Everything may be dead. And you wrestle with that. It settles on you. And we have to remember that when Jesus first appeared on that first Easter, he appeared to disciples who were very much in a Saturday frame of mind. You know, the movies, because we know the the beginning and the end of the story, when we watch the movies about the, the scene, you know, 
we're kind of chuckling because we know good news is coming, but think about what it felt like to be one of the 11. Judas was already gone out of the picture, but the 11 who remained and many of the other disciples with them were huddled together in a large house and think about where their heads were at. They had left everything to follow this Jesus. He had made some very compelling promises about a kingdom that he was going to establish, and they bought into it. They believed that they were going to have places of great privilege alongside Jesus in this glorious new kingdom that he would establish, which would finally shed the oppression and dominance of the Roman Empire, and there they would be restored to the original glory of Israel. And they would have their left and the right seat next to Jesus in this new kingdom. They had forfeited everything. They had staked their reputations, their careers, their futures, their very lives. And now he's dead. He's brutally killed right in front of them. There is no doubt, no secondhand reporting. They watched him die. And think about that moment and what it would feel like, how the air would leave you. And you're sitting there going, now what? I mean, we signed on to this because we believed he was the king and the king is dead. And they're inside this large house in Jerusalem, huddled in fear, afraid to show their faces outside lest they be recognized. And they have no idea what to do next. That's the state of heart they were in when Jesus appeared to them. Now, here's the thing we have to mention. The first ray of hope had already dawned that morning because some of the women, you know, it's just the way it is. Men sleep in, women get up and do stuff. I, women amaze me. Thank God for women, you make the world go around while we pat ourselves on the back and take credit for it all. The women go to the, the grave to make sure everything's in order. And when they get there, they're surprised to see that this huge stone is not just rolled to the side. It's discarded off like some giant just picked it and went, yeah. And they see an angel sitting on the, on the stone, glowing white and going, what are you looking for? I said, well, Jesus is supposed to be here. Why are you looking for the dead among the living? For the living among the dead, I'm sorry. And they're perplexed by this. They're amazed by it. And then the angel says, remember that he had told you this was going to happen? Remember he had spoken often about this, that he would die, but on the third day he would rise. Remember, And women remember, and they're amazed by all this, and while they have not yet seen Jesus, they rush back to the house, and they see the 11 men sitting there all worried and, and fretting over everything. And they go, hey, dudes, we think that maybe Jesus is risen, and they tell them the story of what they saw, and... The, Luke 24, 11 records this for us. The men heard what the women had said and dismissed it because it sounded like nonsense. I think they had a lot to answer for when they saw Jesus. You idiots. I send these women to tell you and you dismiss what they say as nonsense. Just file that away, men, in the back of your mind so that in the future we have a little more humility when we hear women say things to us. The first ray of hope comes through the report of these women who say, we believe that Jesus is risen. Even though they had heard the same predictions Jesus made, their minds were not ready to accept it, and they dismissed even these trustworthy women's testimony as sheer nonsense. They said, look, nice try, but dead people don't come back to life. You know, maybe you think that the ancient people lived in a Harry Potter world where magic spells were going on left and right and dead people were just getting up out of the grave and going, hey, I'm home. You know, maybe you think that's the ancient world, but it wasn't like that. The same skepticism, the same laws of science applied then, and people weren't expecting to see dead people come out of graves. Jesus is risen, and the people closest to him can hardly make room in their minds for the idea. And I want to trace out the impact that Jesus had as he appeared in his resurrected body to these close friends. And I, I just want to make two points this morning. And the first is that Jesus, as he is risen and appears to his friends, 
invites them to rise out of their, their turmoil into peace. They are risen with Christ into peace. I think it's so interesting who Jesus chooses to appear to after he walks out of the grave. Do you ever think about this? If you had been brutally killed by authorities who could not accept the truth of God's testimony, they had abused their power, they had put you unjustly to death without even really much of a fair trial, and you came out of the grave, what is the first thing you might do? See, for me, my first stop would be the high priest's house. Yo, sucker, wake up. How you like me now? I mean, wouldn't you do some gloating? I mean, they'd killed you. They'd spat upon you. They'd say, if you are the king, why don't you come down from that cross? They had mocked him. They had spit on him. I would have a few things to say to those people. I'm back. What's up? Got any more nails laying around? I would have appeared to Pontius Pilate and said, you made a big mistake, boy. But that's not where he goes at all. In fact, what's startling is he doesn't ever stop to see any of those people. But for 40 days, he appears repeatedly to a select group of people. The only people he really appears to are his followers and his friends. And every time he appears to them, he appears to them not in some official capacity making grand speeches and giving marching orders, but he appears to them in a very intimate setting. And he appears to them every single time as a friend. This is amazing to me. And it says a lot about the character of Jesus. If you guys could flash up verses 36 to 40 there. What's interesting is how much Jesus goes out of his way to demonstrate to them, I am not a ghost. Now, before you just gloss over that part of the story, think about this. If we were all at a funeral, and you know how on the side of the funeral home, there's a little lounge where they serve refreshments, and no one ever stops in that room. I, I don't know what it is, but everyone just kind of goes home. But what if we were all sitting in that room, shell-shocked by the passing of someone we loved, and we're trying to give comfort to each other, and in the middle of doing that, the person whose funeral we just attended walked into the room and said, what are you guys talking about? What would your first thought be? Oh, hey, we were just talking about you. Um, sit down. So good to see you're back. Would you be calm about it at all? You would be freaked out. And that's exactly what they thought. They see him and their first thought, even though it's a stupid thought, is, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. And so Jesus goes out of his way to say, no, it's not some vision. You guys aren't having a mass hallucination of wishful thinking and thought projection. I'm really here. And he says, look, I've got flesh. Ghosts don't have flesh. And you can say, yeah, sure, you're going like this. But I, I don't believe it till I touch it. And so what does he say? Go ahead. Touch. Squeeze my hand. Poke your finger through the nail hole if you have to. I am actually here. They touch him. And the hairs rise on the back of their neck. And something's going, they go, oh, this is really weird. This is the most realistic ghost I have ever seen. But you can tell disbelief is starting to fade and excitement is rising. And so because he loves them, he takes it one step further. It sounds kind of random. He goes, hey, you guys have anything to eat? Now you might think maybe dead people coming back to life are starving because they haven't eaten for like three days. I don't think Jesus is just asking for food because he's hungry. But he wants to eat it, and, and he doesn't say, why don't you guys get some food too? It's not about a meal, but he's eating it. It says in the Greek that very clearly, it's the emphasis is on he did it in front of him. It's a ceremonial eating. He's, he's taking this thing, look, watch. Um, he swallows it, and it doesn't fall onto the floor. It stays in his belly because he is risen in the flesh. He's eating it for their benefit, not his own. And why is he doing that? Because it's intensely important for them to understand that he has beaten death and he is standing truly before them in flesh and blood. And we'll talk about it in a second, why that's so important. But then he goes on to do something else. Look at verse 44. He begins to tell them, look, guys, this should not really surprise you. 
I talked a lot about this while I was still with you. Remember? And if you look back to the Gospels, you see in retrospect, just like one of those great movies where they, they kind of bury little clues along the story. And at the end, you go, hey, look back. And you rewind the tape and you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, they were really giving it away the whole time. But because they were giving it away in fragments, you didn't realize the whole story was being knit together. And that's the way it was for the disciples. They would hear all this compelling moral teaching, and then Jesus would all of a sudden drop on them. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to die, and in three days, I'm going to come back. Don't worry. And they're like, what did he say? And you know, you sometimes hear things, and you don't take it seriously. There's not really room in your expectation or your frame of reference to include that in the processing. And so they, they had heard it, but they had not fully understood it. They had not accepted it. And so he's going back and replaying the tape and saying, I told you all of this. This was all predicted. You know, we, we talk about Babe Ruth pointing to center field in Wrigley Field in 1932 World Series. Remember that? He points right at center field and he knocks one right out. And everyone's like, whoa, he called it. That's nothing. Jesus, I told you I'm going to die and I'm coming back. And guess what? I did it. None of this is a surprise. None of this has taken God off guard. It's all part of the plan. And in fact, he says, didn't I tell you when I was with you from the scriptures as old as your great, 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 great ancestors that my life and all of these events were foretold thousands of years ago? This was meant to happen. It is part of God's plan. And why is Jesus saying all this and doing all this? When you see the first words he speaks to them, it tips his hand. It reveals to us what he's really trying to do. Because when he greets them, what are the first words he speaks to his friends? He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. See, I think when people are in pain that doesn't end, when they're in conflict that they feel they're never going to get out of, They live with unhappiness and dissatisfaction. They feel lost and in shock. I think it creates a kind of spiritual amnesia. Or at least blurred vision. I've talked to so many people who are in great pain. And the first things they forget are the basic truths and promises that God has spoken. Because at the moment, God's word doesn't feel true at all. God seems very far away. And so you say to them, you know... That even now, in the midst of this, God loves you very dearly. And he's reaching after you. He wants to bless you. They say, no, that's not true. That's not the God I feel today. And while those things never stop being true, pain has a way of blurring your vision and making you forget. And when you forget what God has said, peace leaves you. Because I want you to think about this. When you forget the truths of God, it's like living in a world without him. And imagine facing the hardships and the uncontrollable forces of this world with no one speaking up for you. No one to turn to, no one to help you. When you pray, you feel like nobody's on the other end of that line. It's sort of like me calling my parents on their cell phones. Why do they even have them? They never answer. Like, Mom, Dad, you got to answer the phone when we call you. But, you know, they, sometimes people of another generation, they turn it off to save batteries because they're used to batteries that last like three hours. This will last you like five days, Mom. you got to leave it on. And you sometimes feel like that about God. Like, what's the point of praying? Nothing ever changes. He doesn't hear me. I don't even know if he thinks I'm alive. And in those moments... Peace goes right out the door, doesn't it? And what you feel instead is chaos. You feel like a storm is raging. You don't know which way is up. Nothing you thought was true feels true anymore. And what Jesus does is he comes into the midst of this Saturday crowd and says, Hey, I want you to stop feeling the way you're feeling. And I want peace to return to you. That's why he demonstrates I'm here in the flesh. Because if Jesus can beat death itself. That means his power is real. 
See, it's without the resurrection, Jesus is nothing more than a great teacher who is a good friend to us, and we're going to really miss him. I've known lots of people like that. I have said goodbye at many funerals to people I care about. So have you. And if Jesus had not returned from the grave, that's all he would have been. He would have been the guy they remember fondly for the rest of their lives. And they would move on and return to fishing and return to tax collecting and get back into their careers and beg their old bosses for a job again. But if Jesus can be death, he's not just a great teacher. He's something else altogether. And the reason that brings peace is because when you cry out to him, he's not some slouchy guy who goes, oh man, that's terrible. Let's pray together. He can actually do something for you. When you feel far from God, beyond redemption, unsavable, so dirty, no one would have you back. Jesus can take you back. He can make you clean. When you're under the weight of illness, or economic downturns, or things that you have no way to control, and you're scared, you don't know what tomorrow is going to be like, and you reach out to Jesus, there's never a question of what he can do. That doesn't mean he will, he will be pleased to do everything you ask of him, but there's never a question, because of the resurrection, there's never again a question in his followers' minds what he is capable of doing. Do you see that that is where peace comes from? It comes from understanding that Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He is God himself, our Savior, and there is nothing impossible for him. And if that is not the way you think of Jesus, that may explain why there's so little peace in your spirit. Why everything scares you so much. Why every slight downturn of your circumstances can completely knock you off kilter and spiral you into depression and anxiety. To behold the risen Jesus is to understand just how powerful Jesus Christ is in our lives. He also establishes that this is all predicted in the word. And what he's saying is it's not just me personally you can trust. But you can trust every word which God has preserved for us in scripture. See, scripture, are, it's not just a bunch of empty platitudes. They're not wise sayings like fortune cookies or, or Confucian, you know, analects. These are words that God has the power and authority to make true. And if you don't have faith in the words of God, you will not have peace about anything. And so Jesus returns to them to say, you can now, I'm leaving you, but everything written in scripture is as solid as a rock for you. If I can walk out of a grave and if scripture predicted it a thousand years ago, this God you follow has more power than you can imagine. He has authority over everything. And this is the God who knows your name and invites you to be saved. When you close your eyes and say, Father God, do you know who is on the other end of that prayer listening to you? When you hate yourself, you can't forgive yourself and you cry out because you just want to feel better. We want to feel clean. You want to feel accepted. Who do you think is hearing that prayer? And I think the reason that so much anxiety dominates our society today is because we have such a small view of our Jesus Christ. And it's on Easter we remember the, the historical fact, the irrefutable fact of his resurrection. That historical fact which every detractor of the Christian faith could do nothing to prevent, nothing to squash. That fact stands forever as an unshakable testimony to us that there is nothing our God cannot accomplish. And you're going to need to remember that at some point in your life. Because I promise you, lots of things will befall you that will crush you without Jesus holding up the roof for you. And so in this Easter, we don't just say, Happy Easter. What we say is, Jesus is risen. That's going to make all the difference in the world to us. Now, there's a second rising that I see in response to the appearing of the risen Jesus. 
What do you think dominated the conversation all Saturday? Just pause and think about it. I want to just give you the answer right away. Think of if you were huddled in room with the 11 and everything had just gone down on Friday and you're shell-shocked and now the adrenaline is kind of dying down and you're in a room talking at a table. What, what point or what question might dominate that conversation? What do you think? Anyone want to venture a guess? <laughs> Go back to the vision. Right. And really that's poking at, at what now? Because while Jesus was with them, he pretty much defined everything. They used to be fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots. They came from all walks of life. And then in Jesus, they were now his band of followers. And they were going to establish a kingdom. And everything was framed by that man. And he was dead. And now they're sitting in a chair going, I don't know. I mean, Peter, you got any ideas? And, and who really wants to follow Peter anyway? He was kind of an idiot, right? Like, he would open his mouth before he thought. And then half the time, he's just sticking his foot in there. And so they're sitting around going, well, when Jesus was here, everything was clear. But look at us. We're 11 idiots sitting at a table. What are we supposed to do now? I think that's probably a pretty good guess as to what dominated the conversation all Saturday. What on earth are we supposed to do now? Because when Jesus was there, they had a purpose. And with Jesus gone, there were just 11 guys. What now? And so in verse 46, as you pick up the story... Jesus gives them a tremendous gift. <clears throat> he summarizes God's plan of salvation with three very important verbs. The first is suffering. He says the Christ must suffer because God demands justice. You can't have all the sin, all the murder and hatred and prejudice and adultery and sexual perversion all over the world, the violence and the abuses and the theft. You can't just have all of that and just wipe it clean for nothing. It doesn't work that way. If God is just, he's righteous, something must satisfy his demand for justice. And so the Christ must suffer. A price has to be paid for redemption. And none of us could pay it. And so the first verb that's, that's in his summary of the redemption plan is there must be suffering to satisfy justice. And then he says, the suffering will end in death, but I will rise because if I don't rise, then I'm just another martyr. But if I rise, I actually have beaten the penalty. And I've made life after death a real possibility for those who place their trust in me. In those Two verbs, he summarizes what makes salvation possible for humanity. Is that the Christ will suffer and the Christ will rise. And he says, what could you do about that? Those parts I have just done. I'm standing in front of you having accomplished those two very important things. And then he gives the third part of the salvation plan. The third verb is this. He says in verse 47, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. Here's what he's saying. The first important elements of the salvation plan you had nothing to do with. The Christ had to suffer and the Christ had to rise. He has done it. But the question lingers in the air. Okay, if salvation is possible, how will the benefits of his work on the cross be made available to mankind? And what Jesus does is he takes that lingering question, what are we supposed to do now? And he says, this is now your new mission in life. This is the gift he gives them, is the gift of purpose. He says, from now on, this is your privilege. You will preach the good news of the gospel. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations, starting right here in Jerusalem, you will spread out all over the world and make this good news known. 
Here's another way of saying this. And please wake up and hear me now, because if you're sleeping on this part, you're going to miss things. I'm giving you what's going to be on the test, man. Okay? Listen to me. Shake it off. Listen to me. The central purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is evangelistic. I'm a pastor and it staggers me how quickly we forget that. Now, did you notice that his first agenda when he encounters them is not to lecture them, not to send them on their way. His first agenda is to give them peace because their hearts are all over the place. This is our Christ. He loves us. He wants us to be healed, to be whole. He wants us to have peace. He desperately wants that for you and me. You're not just some tool in his hand. He cares about you. He wants to bring wholeness and peace to your life. It matters very much to him. In fact, it matters first to him that through him you would have peace. But the purpose of the church was never for us to just be a healthy and whole community. That was never the idea. We were always meant to be a community that preaches the good news of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. And as your senior pastor, I want to earnestly confess to you that that is not always the urgent picture, the mission of the church that motivates me in the morning. I live in church world. You guys are my prison, man. Like, this is it. This is my whole world. You guys are everything to me most of the time. And I sometimes forget just how many people are outside wasting away their lives far from God. No hope. Nowhere to turn. They don't even know how to make themselves feel better about all the gross junk that they have collected in their soul. All the things they've seen that they can't stop seeing in their mind's eye. The inability to forgive others and to forgive themselves. What do, you, what do they do with all that? And because I don't see a lot of those people, I forget. And some mornings I wake up and I think to myself, how are we going to hold this church together? How are we going to meet everyone's needs? How are we going to make sure everyone stays motivated? They come to small group and they come to church on Sunday. How can we make Sunday service an awesome experience? All those things are great. I think God cares very much about them. But the church in its central mission is to be a place of rescue for people who are far away from God. And I want to ask you if you would join with me in earnestly praying to God to restore the urgency and clarity of that central mission to us as a church family. Because what I see here as he summarizes the salvation plan is that there is absolutely no other plan for the transmission of the good news. We are it. We will preach the good news and people will be saved or we will not. And the gospel will not move out. I don't know if the urgency in your heart involves preaching the gospel to one another and to the world around us. But I think Easter is also a great day for us to remember we are not just people in pain who need a healer, but that we are also then his vessels sent out into a hurting world to preach that the burden of our guilt does not have to remain on our shoulders, but there is a place to put that. Someone will take it from them. And half the ugliness we see out there, now forget that, all of the ugliness we see out there comes out of the filth that is in a person's heart which they are powerless to clean for themselves. So I want to ask you to hold me and the other leaders of this church accountable to remind us often that the first and central mission of this church is to preach the good news of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. Let me just wrap up by showing you a few other things quickly in this passage. 
What I love about Jesus is he never looks at us like we're just instruments in his hand. Sadly, I think that's sometimes the way we think of other people. You're good for this, you're good for that. But Jesus never really treats us like impersonal objects. He's always calling us to a mission and then making sure we're okay to do it. And in verse 49, he says, don't just go rushing out there blabbing the gospel to everyone because your testimony will not save anybody. You can blab on all day long about how great I am and no one else will care. And here's what he says. The real power for you to have an evangelistic ministry does not rest in the resources of your church. It does not rest in the conviction of your heart or in the giftedness and talents of the people that go to your church. That is not where power comes from. But he says, wait, and I will supply for you the power that will make your testimony able to save others. Have you ever noticed that there are some people in your life that you're constantly dotting your I's and crossing your T's, you wear Christian t-shirts, you carry your big study Bible, you never swear in front of them, you show up early to every meeting, you pick up the garbage they drop, and you're like trying so hard to witness Jesus and, and spread the good news, and they're like, yeah, good for you, man, all right. It's so convenient having you follow me everywhere and giving me water when I'm thirsty. And, but they never seem interested in the Jesus you're testifying to. And I think what might be missing is that we think this is a persuasive message and if people would just hear it the right way at the right time, they'll get it and they'll be saved. That's how you sell timeshares. I know, I bought one. <laughs> I slept on the couch for weeks after buying it. But that's not the way the gospel works. It's not a message in itself so compelling. Anyone who hears it must sign on the dotted line. It is a mysterious thing that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit is impossible for the hard human heart to receive. And that is why we will never have a ministry of evangelism at our church without first being clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit from on high. And unless we are people who regularly submit ourselves to God and say, God, I don't have anything you can use. Come and fill me with power. Ten years of going to Tuba City will make not a lick of difference apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. They are not going to be saved by our love for them. Ten years have clearly proven that they really don't care that much how much we love them because in the end, who is you? That's their heart. Who are you? Yeah, we know your faces. We've seen you before. But it is not our love that saves anyone. It helps. It gets us in the door. But what we really need more than anything is a deep, deep indwelling and empowerment from the Holy Spirit of God so that every word we speak reaches deep, deeper than human love can reach. Thank you, Johnny. Somebody's listening. All right. Then he leads them out of the city because sometimes the city gets a little noisy. You know what I mean? And they go out to the suburbs <laughs> outside of someone's front lawn and the jets come on. And he starts and you see the pictures, right? The paintings, all the Western artists as Jesus is, is ascending. He, he's like this. You ever notice that? That's not a Kung Fu movie. He's, he's like this. You know what that's all about? It says that as he was ascending, his parting words were, were a blessing. He was blessing. You know what that Greek word is behind the word blessing there? It's the word that we get the, the English word eulogy from. When do you usually hear a, a eulogy? Sadly, the only time we ever hear a eulogy is when someone's dead. Hey, they're gone. Let's say good stuff about them. How pathetic that the only time we have the word eulogy pop up in our culture is to speak well of someone who can't hear us. They're dead. Let's remember them to one another. But the word eulogy is actually not a word meant for death. It's meant for life. It literally means, if you put the two Greek roots together, a good word. It's the word that we derive the Latin word benediction from. That's what we do at the end of the service. That's why, in our conception of it, a benediction is not just a closing prayer. 
I know some of you grew up in churches where that was tradition is let's close with the closing prayer. A benediction is not necessarily a prayer so much as it is a word of kindness and affirmation and reminder and blessing to people. It is a word given from someone to others in Jesus' power and name that is meant to be like a verbal hug from God. Do you get that? A good word spoken as a gift to people who are hearing. And it is with that final parting blessing that he rockets his way up to heaven. Now, normally when someone leaves you, there's sadness. But I want you to look at what happens next. Verse 52 and on. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. When you study the great revivals of Christian history, this is the atmosphere you read about again and again. Was that the presence of Jesus was such a powerful drug for the soul that people could not get enough. There's no squirming in the seats, looking at the clock going, dude, how long is this fool going to drone on and on and on? Apart from the presence of Jesus... You're sitting in the worst speech in the world. Just go watch TV. There's better stories on TV. But when Jesus is present among a people, you just can't get enough. We know what that feels like because there are people we're far from physically who when they visit us, it's so hard to let them go. It's not that you're going to lose that relationship But having someone with you very close is irreplaceable. I don't know about you, but I really don't like saying goodbye to people. And as I've gotten older, I don't know what, maybe Dr. Ed could take a look in my eyes. They've gotten leaky with older age. I'm crying all the time. I cried during the movie Lincoln on an airplane in front of people. I've just been crying lately, left and right. I, I feel like, when the, when the presence of Jesus visits my life, I can't not cry anymore. And there's nothing in my life that competes with what that feels like. Do you know what I'm saying? And when we've experienced it, there is no other high we will spend our lives chasing. You know this unending itch in your heart to feel alive, to feel something, anything? And maybe for you... You've just written off that that can't ever come from church. That can't come from Jesus. And so you you blast the music and you feel the lights and the smoke. You just want to feel alive, but you never really feel as alive as you want to feel, do you? You strap on your GoPro and you jump out of an airplane. You're screaming, and you hit the ground. You go, it was over. Let's just watch the video a thousand times. And even then... As intense as it is to hurtle out of an airplane from 20,000 feet, it ends and you go, that's it? What do I have to do to feel alive? Do you realize that the presence of Jesus will touch that part of you you have been longing to see come to life? I know that that may not be how you feel every Sunday at harvest. Great joy, continual worship. I don't care if this ever ends. Let's just eat dinner here together. Come on. Anyone, if you stick around, we might just keep the service going until about 7 p.m. tonight. You are more than welcome to stay with us. Trailer team, I'm sorry for the short notice. Is there something that could happen in our lives where that would not sound horrible? And you go to church in Africa, you're pretty much done. It's just the whole day. 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And they're just getting warmed up. And I kind of like it. I know that's not how it feels to be here every Sunday. But if that's not what you feel when you come in here, we'll do our best to preach well, to play good music. But in the end, the missing ingredient might be that we have not yet really invited the presence of Jesus Christ to set our hearts on fire. And I think that's what we can pray today. It's what I really feel dead about 
is not anything in this life. It's that I haven't been with you in a very long time the way I once felt when you were close. That's what's missing for me. Now, let me just say one of the greatest proofs, if you will, of the resurrection is the way it changed these 11 men. I'm not trying to be disrespectful when I say that they were a ragtag band of second stringers. Okay? If you're going to start a global movement, these are not your guys. But after they see the risen Christ, something clicks and they're never the same again. Because what they realized was their great teacher, their master, turned out to be God himself. And that deeply marked them for the rest of their lives. And because they saw him beat death, they realized that death is not the end of their life either. It completely reframes the way you think about and spend this life when you know that beyond the veil of death, there is a life unending, a life that is truly life. When you really believe that, it completely changes what you expect to get out of this life. If this life is all we have, then like rats clinging to a piece of of driftwood, we will hang on for dear life, wanting everything to happen here. But when you see the risen Jesus and really get it, this is nothing but a blink of the eye. Good things will happen. Bad things will happen. But this is not my final home. Suddenly, your clenched fist loosens. And the grip that this world has on you loosens. You're free to live. Really live before you die. And because of Jesus, know this. The worst thing most of us think could happen is death. But because of Jesus' resurrection, death for us is a passage. It is not the end. And until the day you look at the risen Christ and believe it with all your heart, the gospel will not change your life. But if you see in him this life that is really life, I promise you it will change everything. Everything. So I want to invite you just to pause for a minute today. And let's pray together. Let's respond to the Lord together. You know what I see in Jesus is repeatedly he's drawing near to us. If Jesus feels far from you, it's not because he's walking away. It's probably because, for some reason, we don't want him too close. Maybe we hold him responsible for the state of our lives. If you really were powerful, if you really loved me, wouldn't my life feel better? You got to know this. The starting point of our relationship with Jesus is never, what have you done for me lately? But it is the cross, and look what he has done. On the worst day of your life, he endured worse because he loved you. Can you look at him and say, yeah, I would let you in if you would make my life a little better? Jesus wants to give you peace, and peace comes from his presence in your life. And so let's begin there. Is there something you have to let go of so that we can begin to open our lives? He wants to enter. He does. And if he does enter, everything will be different. So let's invite him in. Let's pray. If in the course of hearing this message, it has dawned on you that you have never invited Jesus, accepted, trusted him to be the one who made salvation possible for you. If you've never really had that personal encounter, do you know that you can't be saved 
vicariously through the testimony of another. Jesus wants to meet you. He's not content to be the friend of a friend. He's inviting you into friendship with him. And if you realize that you may have had your body in church all your life, but your heart has never been open to Jesus, this will be a great day to step out in faith and say, Jesus, I want to be with you like that. I want to trust you like that. Help me. At the same time, if you have been a Christ follower for many years, but lately in your life, there is a noteworthy absence of peace. There isn't much joy and he seems very far from you. I think today will be an excellent day to say I've been away too long. Draw me to yourself. Call me home, Jesus. There's no peace out here away from you. I can't seem to find joy. I want to come back. You're going to need his help to do that. But I think today would be a great day to lift up a faith-filled prayer. Just telling Jesus you want to come home. So why don't we take another couple minutes. If that just strikes you at where you are right now, let's just lift up those prayers. The last thing I'd like us to pray together as a church is that Jesus, by his authority and power, would help us reclaim our central mission to preach the good news of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. I'm not sure exactly what that will look like, but I know that only Jesus could help us reclaim that mission as our deepest heartfelt priority. And all around us are people floundering far away from God, lost. And they need Jesus more than they need anything else. So let's ask him to do that at harvest. Call us to live up to our name as a church. Let's pray that together earnestly. Lord, starting with those first 11 men you called. If it had not been for your resurrection, they would never have changed that way. But after seeing you risen from the dead, they became new beings. They became men who brought your good news to the ends of their known world and paid for the privilege with their own lives. And we want to see you risen in our lives the same way. We want to see you powerful. We want to see you as the one who can be trusted and believed. God, we confess some of us are still stuck in Saturday and need the good news of your resurrection to dawn on our hearts. We cannot conjure it for ourselves. So I pray, God, today, somehow, somewhere, before this day is over, the light of the resurrection would dawn on each of us. I pray that you will wreck us. Just completely overtake us with that. And mark us, make us new and different because we have seen you and been with you. Today of all days, turn our hearts towards you. You are the one we need more than anyone and anything else. Bring many people home today. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.